But, as I hope you know, there is a better way. There is someone who is the ultimate revelation from God, supreme over all. There is a prophet who shows us the truth about God and tells us how to be reconciled to him and live our lives fully. There's a priest who made perfect and final purification for sins, bringing all those who believe in his name into God's family. And finally, there is a king who sits enthroned above all, who is worthy of our praise, worship, and allegiance. So our text this morning is Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Now, just for a bit of background, the letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century A.D., This prologue to the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4, it's the prologue, we'll look at the first three verses of that, outlines and introduces the author's main intent for the entire letter, which was to show the supremacy of Christ and warn the readers not to fall away from him. So for these Jewish Christians, as they faced uh, persecution, they were tempted to go back to the old covenant, the old system, to try to find salvation. The writer of the letter warns them that there is no salvation in anything or anyone but Christ. And, in fact, everything about that old covenant pointed forward to the greater reality, which is Jesus Christ. So in the main body of the letter, the writer shows Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses and Joshua, better than Aaron, better than the Old Testament sacrifices. And throughout all of these arguments, he sprinkles in warning passages telling the readers not to abandon such a great salvation as that found in Jesus. Likewise, for us, as we live in a society hostile to Christianity and hostile to God, we also need a reminder of this great salvation that has been accomplished. So in this passage, these three short verses, we see Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the one who reveals the truth and shows us the Father, and who is, in fact, God himself, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the one who made a once-for-all sacrifice, accomplishing purification for sins, and who sat down after his completed work. And then we see Jesus as the ultimate king, enthroned above, ruling over all things, and he deserves our complete and humble service. This is what these first three verses of Hebrews remind us of. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning. We thank you for um, who you are. God, we thank you that uh, you reign over all uh, and that you have called us to yourself, Lord. Uh, We know that we were once in darkness and now we are in the light. We once claimed to be wise but were fools. Um, But when we rejected our own knowledge, um, we became wise because of the truth that is contained in your word. And so as we open your word this morning, uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to guide us, to give us wisdom, to give us eyes to see what you have for us this morning and hearts uh, to be convicted and to uh, draw near to you, changing uh, the way we live so that we can honor and glorify you fully. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us as we look into your word. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first we see Jesus is the ultimate prophet and we must know the truth. The author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so we see a contrast set up here between the many and varied ways in which God spoke to his people through the prophets before Christ 
and then his ultimate revelation of himself in Jesus. This reference stretches all the way back to the beginning of the world, encompassing God's revelation of himself through Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of the prophets leading up to Jesus Christ. So this revelation of himself through the prophets was partial. It was not full. It was not complete. That revelation in the, under the Old Testament pointed forward to this future time in which God would speak more definitively and reveal the culmination of his salvific work in Christ. Now, it's important to note the former way of God speaking is not viewed as bad, but rather it's viewed as incomplete. It points forward. And so, in fact, the office of the prophet in the Old Testament always pointed forward to a coming prophet who would finally reveal the fullness of God. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, Moses prophesies of a prophet like him, but greater than him, who is to come in the future. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this passage is a paradigm of the entire prophetic office. Every prophet that came along fulfilled this partially, but ultimately it pointed forward to the greater reality, the greater ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. So we read prophets would speak the words that God put into their mouths, and he would speak as God commanded him to. What do we read of Jesus? Jesus not only spoke God's words, but he is called the very word of God. John 1, 1 and 14 say, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then, just in case there's any doubt as to who this word is, John says in verse 14 that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and he's the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is Jesus able to fully and finally reveal God as his ultimate prophet? Because Jesus is the word of God, God himself. The author of Hebrews explains the same thing in verses 2 and 3 when he says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And then he explains who this Son is. One whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a pretty, that's pretty high praise for a prophet, right? You see... Jesus is able to fully and finally reveal God because he is God. He is the word of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus was fully God and fully man in the incarnation, and he has revealed fully who God is. Paul agrees in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, speaking of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the agent of creation, the sustainer of all things, the head of the church, and the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Scripture is clear time and again, telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh, the fullest revelation of God. 
Now, if this is who Jesus is, if Jesus is the ultimate prophet, full of grace and truth, God himself, who cannot speak any lies, then how should our lives be different? How can we daily practice a life that acknowledges Christ's office of prophet? The danger for the Jewish Christian audience of the letter to the Hebrews was abandoning Christ to return to the shadows of him found in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets. The danger for us is probably not the same. I don't think too many of us are looking to go start sacrificing animals and such. Um, But there's a danger for us in turning away to believe the lies of the world. Or even if we don't go that far, just not sim- simply not seeking to know Jesus deeply. We need to know the truth. We must know Jesus, the true word of God. So listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 31 and 32. Um, I was told that Pastor John generally has a whole bunch of scripture references up there. I don't have slides that full, but if you take little notes of the references I mentioned, I'll try to make sure it that I say them clearly, you'll be able to catch all of those as well. So John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you find yourself lamenting over your sin and being frustrated that you feel like you have no power to overcome it? The truth as found in Jesus is what sets people free. As believers, we can affirm all the truths of the Bible without ever actually abiding in Christ and in his word, instead filling our minds with Netflix, social media, the philosophies of the world. And I wonder what would happen if our time in the word was more than our time spent inhaling the thoughts of the world. I think that's when we would experience immense spiritual growth and find out God has given us everything we need in Christ. Jesus says in John 15, talking about abiding in him, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, on my drive here this morning, I live in Cochrane, um, work in Calgary. Uh, I had about an hour driving here, and I was thinking about this first point, thinking about Jesus as the ultimate prophet. And I've had people say to me before that they're struggling with sin. A certain sin, they're believers, they're just like, man, I just can't seem to shake this sin. And my first question generally is, well, how's your time in the Word? And oftentimes they'll say, well, it could be better. Well, I I do a little Devo probably once every other day, and there's just a huge disconnect there. Like Jesus says in John 8, if you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and then what will the truth do in your life? The truth will set you free. And so, I think as we seek to live our Christian lives, we need to be people of the Word, because all of the Bible talks about Jesus, right? All of it is God-breathed, useful for teaching, training, rebuking, and training in righteousness, right? And when we look at the commands to put to death what is earthly in you, to kill sin, how do we do that? Right? We try all these different strategies, all these things in my power, I'm going to defeat this, but it seems to not work. But think about Ephesians 6. Think about the armor of God. What is the only offensive thing we're given? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
So it seems a little silly if our call is to kill sin that we approach it without the sword of the Spirit. And so I think as we seek to know the truth, obviously we need to be in the Word, reading about Jesus, who is the truth. His Word is truth. And not only do we need to spend time in it, I think we need to internalize it as well. I've been feeling really convicted about that over the past few weeks, memorizing Scripture. Because when you face temptation throughout the day, you may not be in a place where you can pull out your Bible. You might be at work, you might be at school, you might be in a situation where you don't have your phone to pull out your Bible app. And how are you going to fight that temptation with the Word of God if you don't have it in you? And so I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, uh, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So seek Jesus. Abide in him. Know the truth. What does Jesus say? Jesus reveals that God exists, that sin separates us from God, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That looks like forsaking our sin, repenting of it, and walking in the newness of life that Christ brings. Now contrast that with what the world says. God is dead. Man is king. We're here for a short time, so enjoy your life while you can, because once you're dead, that's it. So let's live it up. Contained within that, in, within this worldview, is a multitude of lies that say the things of the world will satisfy you ultimately. If you have more money, you'll finally be happy. If you have more fame, you'll finally be happy. If you pursue the lusts of your flesh, whatever that might be for you, you will finally be happy and satisfied. All of it is nonsense, yet many of us fall for these lies, either in big ways or in little, small ways every day. So who do you listen to? God has spoken finally, fully, and definitively in Jesus Christ, his Son, the second person of the Trinity. He is full of grace and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, and salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do not abandon Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Do not neglect the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Turn to him and live. So do you know the truth? Do you seek the truth? Our society is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity, and as these lies swirl around us, attempting to make us stray from the straight and narrow path, as sin crouches at the door waiting to spring its trap, know the truth, because the best way to combat lies is to know the truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, and apart from him, there is no joy, peace, or hope. And then as you know the truth, carry on the ultimate prophet's prophetic ministry and proclaim the truth to a lost and dying world. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We need to make disciples. How can we do that if we don't know the truth ourselves? The world needs truth. The world needs Jesus. We need truth. We need Jesus. So we see Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And then we see Jesus as the ultimate priest the one who accomplished purification from sin. The writer says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Now, two aspects of this are important. It's very short. Um, we'll look at the purification itself, and then we'll look at the fact that Christ sat down. Both of those are important as we look at Christ's office as the ultimate priest. So the original readers of this letter, being Jewish, 
had a deep understanding of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Instead of going and reading uh, the whole Torah to explain this, I'll just give you a little summary. Zaspel writes, Old Testament sacrifice was intended to signify more than mere homage. The significance was that of securing forgiveness, expiation of sin, through the offering of a substitute. The offerer is not portrayed as a mere creature, but specifically as a sinner, a sinful creature in need of forgiveness. The sacrificial victim bears the sin of the worshiper who receives forgiveness by that substitutional sin-bearing. So that's the pattern of the Old Testament, offering these sacrifices for forgiveness. And they did that with five different sacrifices. We won't dive into those. But Hebrews picks up on this theme in chapter 9, explaining in verses 1 through 10 the various preparations and rituals of the Old Testament priests. And then the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to make an offering for himself and for the people. And then the author explains that these sacrifices under the old system that were offered continually, year after year after year, could never perfect the conscience of the worshipers. And instead, he looks forward to what he calls the time of reformation. The writer states in chapter 9, verse 12, that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, contrasted with year after year after year of these high priests. Christ entered once for all into the holy places by his own blood, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then in verse 26, Jesus appeared again once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ has made full and final purification for sin. Jesus didn't provide temporary purification like under the old covenant that needed to be constantly sacrificed for year after year after year, but full and final purification, once for all purification by his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. He is the culmination of this salvific work, the ultimate priest. And so that's the purification. Now what about sitting down? We might not think that, we might be prone to link the sitting down with his kingship in the next part of this verse, um, which it also is linked there, but um, we should understand it in the context of his ministry as well. The act of sitting down shows that Christ's work is finished, emphasizing again, it's, he doesn't have to continue offering this, he sat down. The Old Testament priests could not sit down after their work. They had to get up, walk out of the holy place, only to have another high priest walk in again year after year after year after year to continue this purifying work. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we see Jesus, the ultimate priest, sat down because his work was and is full, final, complete, and finished. My friends, salvation has been accomplished by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. He saved us, purified us, redeemed us from dead works to serve the living God. So why would we deviate from that? Why would we try to find salvation in anything else? Apart from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. So, have faith. Remain in Christ. Do not deviate. Christ has made this payment for sin brought final purification, and he has cleansed us, not just to cleanse us, but he's cleansed us for service to God. 
So stand firm, don't shrink back, take refuge in Christ's finished work. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation. Rest in Christ's finished work. Satan would love for you to drown in shame and guilt over your sin, but Jesus paid the price. The work is finished. Don't look back at your sin in guilt and shame because there's no condemnation. When we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk forward in newness of life. Preach the gospel to yourself every day and live in the freedom that Christ has purchased. Jesus did not die for us to continue living in sin. Jesus died to set us free from sin, to purify our hearts and our minds, and to allow us to walk in newness of life. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Rest in his finished work. The world wants us to believe many things about God, many things about the world, many things about Jesus, and many things about salvation. But to counter this, God has revealed himself through the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, who is also the ultimate priest and the only way of salvation. His sacrifice is the only way that we can be saved. No matter what the world says, if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. Or there is no afterlife, so just live it up however you want. Jesus is the only way of salvation. So, as the lies of the world swirl around us, let's rehearse the gospel. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The natural state of every human being is under this condemnation because in Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, we fall into this category of those who oppose God and deserve punishment for our sins. Paul calls us children of wrath like the rest of mankind before Christ. But God, in his rich mercy and grace, because of his great love, provided a sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth, lived a righteous life, and then died in the place of sinners on the cross, bearing sin, paying that penalty. And through his death, he provided purification for sin for all those who believe in his name. For all those who believe in his name, not for all those who believe in his name and work really, really hard and be really, really good people. And that's why in Romans 10, 9 through 11, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The things of the world won't satisfy, and the things of the world can never save. Jesus is superior to every single thing the world can offer. Money won't save you. Fame won't save you. Pursuing your fleshly desires won't save you. Being a good person won't save you. So believer, be encouraged with this reminder of the great salvation that has been won for you by the precious blood of Christ and rest in his finished work. Rest in his finished work. Quit striving by your own strength and rest. And then as you rest, he will supply the strength for you to live the obedient Christian life. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. In Colossians 1.29, Paul says he struggles with God's energy that he powerfully works within me. Only by God's power can we offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. 
And then as we consider Christ's work as the ultimate priest, the biblical writers in 1 Peter 2.9 and Revelation 1.6 stress that God has made us priests in this same line to him, to God. So as we rely on Jesus, the ultimate priest, and rest in his finished work, we can fulfill our calling as priests in his line, not offering ourselves for salvation, not earning salvation, but in worship of him. A pleasing aroma to God is the sacrifice of our lives. So rest in Christ's finished work and find strength to live for him. And then thirdly, in this passage, we see Jesus as the ultimate king. Verse 3b, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So not only is Jesus seated on high as the priest who has completed his work, he is also seated as the king on the throne. He's seated at the right hand, ruling and reigning over creation, crowned with glory and honor after his work of purification has been completed. So in this verse in Hebrews, it's an allusion to Psalm 110, which crops up multiple times throughout the letter and is a key text for the book of Hebrews. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Jesus also referred to this psalm in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Peter, as well, says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then Paul, in Philippians 2, says that because of Christ's work on earth, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate king, enthroned forever on the throne of David as promised in 2 Samuel 7. He reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords with the name above every name and all things will be subjected to him. This is Jesus, the ultimate king, the one to whom all will bow. And right now we look around in our world, well, if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning over all creation, then why, why is there so much rebellion? Why is there so much sin running around? Why are there so many people that look like they're not in subjection to God? Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. People still live in sin. Now, this is not due to any powerlessness in God, but it's due to his mercy. Jesus could return immediately, punish sin finally, bind and condemn Satan, and have all things finally subjected to him. So if he could do this, why doesn't he? 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience in making all things right is an act of his mercy, so that more people will come to Christ and be saved. The reality, however, is that not all people will come to Christ and receive salvation. Just two verses earlier in 2 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter writes, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So we know the ungodly, the sinful, the wicked will be punished. Sin will be judged. When the King of Kings returns, he will set all things right. And so we look around, we know Jesus is seated on high, and we know that one day he will return. And so that should give us a sense of urgency, right? We see unbelieving friends and family members not in subjection to him. We can either willingly go to him or one day all things will be put into subjection to him. So whom do you serve? What king do you bow down to? A lot like the period of the judges, our society worships self and it wants us to do the same thing. In the time of judges, it was said, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see that same thing today. And what single word is a great summary of the book or the period of the judges? Chaos. When man is king, doing what is right in his own eyes, chaos reigns. And remember, the world says, man is the measure of all things. You are the master of your own destiny. You choose what your life is like. The world would have you worship anything other than Christ. And in fact, even this month, many people will be worshiping a destructive ideology that only causes hurt and pain and death. Everyone worships something, but every single thing that people worship outside of Christ only brings death. All of these things do not bring lasting comfort, peace, or reward, but our king, the ultimate king, is different. He's not a capricious tyrant like the things of the world, but he is gentle and lowly, full of grace and truth, looking after the downcast and the trodden, pouring out his grace and his mercy on his servants. Serving this king is not a heavy burden. The yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. Serving this king is the most soul-satisfying thing that anyone can ever do, and it's God's delight for us to delight in him. Look to Jesus, the ultimate king, supreme over all, and find joy in a life lived for him. He is our crucified and resurrected king with whom we also have been crucified, and it's now Christ who lives in us. So let's serve him gladly. He blesses his people. It's not a burden to serve him. We often think of subjection as a burden. It's like, oh man, I want to be free and just live, do whatever I want. But when we live and do whatever we want, we're enslaved to the flesh. But when we submit to Christ, he gives us true freedom. True freedom is being able to live in obedience to God. So, as we look around, we see the world is dying. The world needs prophets who point others to the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, and priests who live their lives sacrificially to make known the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ, pointing others to his once-for-all sacrifice. And as we do these things, we serve the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, and we point others to his throne. The world needs this ultimate king, the one who cares for his subjects, blesses his servants, and gives them abundantly beyond all that they could ever ask or imagine. The world, as it searches for hope, can only find hope in Jesus, who is supreme over all. And so as we end our consideration of these three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, listen to what John Flavel, a Puritan pastor from the 17th century, wrote about Christ in his office as king 
Note how these, this office as king ties all three, prophet, priest, and king, together. He writes, We now come to the regal office by which our glorious mediator executes and discharges the undertaken design of our redemption. Had he not, as our prophet, opened the way of life and salvation to the children of men, they could never have known it. If they had clearly known it, except as their priest, he had offered up himself to impetrate and obtain redemption for them, they could not have been redeemed by his blood. And if they had been so redeemed, yet he, had he not lived in the capacity of a king to apply this purchase of his blood to them, they could have had no actual personal benefit by his death. For what he revealed as a prophet, he purchased as a priest, and what he so revealed and purchased as a prophet and priest, he applies as a king, first subduing the souls of his people to his spiritual government, then ruling them as his subjects, and ordering all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. Notice that last line, I love that. Ordering all things in the kingdom of providence for their good. If you ever think that subjecting yourself to Christ as king is burdensome, just think about the promise of providence. God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Subjection to Christ as king is not without its rewards. Yes, we must give up everything to follow him, but what we receive is so much greater. When we submit to Christ as king, we give up sin, but we receive righteousness. We give up the right to live our lives as we please, but we receive eternal life. We give up the pursuit of worldly riches, but we receive immeasurable, imperishable riches in the life to come. We give up ourselves, but we receive Christ. This submission to Christ as king is the most infinitely satisfying joy because it's the very reason we were created in the first place. In Christ is life, in Christ is joy, in Christ is everything good. The only king worthy and the only king who works for the good of his people is Jesus. So bow to him, find life and peace and every good thing, and then gladly fulfill his commission to make his name known throughout the earth. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So believer, rejoice in the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Know the truth and reject the lies of the world. Preach the truth to a lost and dying world. Go to Jesus for purification and reject the false salvation that the world offers. Resting in his finished work, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to him. And then submit to Jesus as king and gladly serve him. And point others to the beauties of this gracious and merciful and good good king. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, consider the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. 
While the world tells you lies, the truth is found only in Jesus. While the world contains empty promises of life and joy and satisfaction, only in Jesus is true life and joy and peace found in purification from sin and reconciliation with the God who made you. And while the world tells you that you are your own king and it enslaves you unknowingly to the devil, only Jesus is the rightful king enthroned above all, and he is the only king who blesses his servants. Quit running from the supreme Lord of all and give up on trying to live for yourself. True freedom is only found in denying yourself and following Christ. So, Jesus is supreme over all. Jesus is the truth and is far better than all of the lies that the world tells us. Jesus is the one who has accomplished purification from sin and no other so-called way of salvation comes anywhere close to his once-for-all sacrifice. And Jesus is the king on the throne and all attempted usurpers of this throne pale in comparison to his beauty and generosity. Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme over all. Turn to Jesus. So Redemption Olds, receive this benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.